like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 11. And we're going to be, be, begin reading in verse number 1. And this actually begins more or less the second half of the book of John. And by the end of this chapter, which will take us some weeks to get through, we'll be reading of how Jesus is preparing to go to the Passover. The Passover week that would involve his death, burial, and, rec- and, and resurrection. So uh, we're getting close to the end. And it seems as if really the mood changes uh, from that of the great shepherd and pictures and stories like that to what amounts to the greatest miracle as of yet, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And um, that will get us thinking toward what will take place in the life of Jesus. But let me read to you, at least through the verse, uh, the first 16 verses, then we'll pray and we'll work through these one at a time and make some application before we go home. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he says to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. That you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We need your help to take a passage of Scripture that's so far removed from us and our setting right here and now. Lord, it surely meant something to these people as you wrote it, as it means something to us. Lord, we want to know what this means. And then having understood it, we want to be obedient to it. We want it to produce the effect for which it was written. So, Lord, do what's necessary to us to put our mind in a place to learn, 
and our heart in a place to surrender. All these things we don't bring with us this morning. You'll have to give them to us. So Lord, we thank you for being the great teacher. And we ask now your blessing on our time in your word. Speak to us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, as far as this chapter goes and as it progresses, the scene will shift back and forth from this place on the other side of the Jordan River where Jesus had gone to hide, basically. Things had gotten so rough. The last time he was in Judea, again, for the third time, they tried to kill him. And he didn't even go back to the Galilee, seeming that that wasn't safe. So he's out where all this began, in the desert where John the Baptist was baptizing. But then it speaks of these friends of his that are in Bethany. So the scene will shift back and forth from where Jesus is to Bethany until he actually goes to Bethany. And then we'll see the miracle take place, Lazarus raised from the dead. And then we'll see the controversy that is sparked and where the men actually get together and we hear their conversation behind closed doors as they prepare uh, to solve this problem known as Jesus once for all. Now John introduces us to Lazarus by way of his sisters, Mary and Martha. We see that there in the first verse. Uh, They all come from Bethany. And it seems that John makes the assumption that his audience would know more about the sisters than they would know about Lazarus. And that seems to be the reason why he would uh, tell us about what Mary had done in anointing Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair, even though he's not going to mention that until the next chapter. So for the first-time reader who doesn't know about this, they're thinking, okay, and then by the time they get to chapter 12, oh, well, that makes sense now. But it seems John's making the assumption that the church he's writing this to has known about this. They know who Mary is, even though they might not know about her brother. So this is how he chooses to introduce us to them. Now Luke tells us more than John does about the home there in Bethany and the relationship between Mary and Martha. You might have discussed Uh, the differences in temperament and character and Sunday school lessons or devotionals, how Mary got at Jesus' feet and was listening and Martha was busy doing all kinds of things and the two of them seemed to be at odds as to which was the right thing to do. But we catch this glimpse into this home that as strange as it may be to actually say, apparently Jesus felt at home in that home. And to think about that. You've got folks that you're close to, that you spend time with, that you stay at their house, they stay at your house. At a moment's notice, they could call and you would be there. It's that type of relationship. But to consider that a family has a relationship with the Son of God uh, almost seems to be something... Uh, in the background, the humanity of Jesus and the humanity of these people seem to be much more on display here, and for good reason, I believe. There was trouble in that household, though, and we learn of that in this passage. Lazarus was deathly ill. He was probably the youngest. Martha was probably the oldest by the fact that her name is mentioned first in most of the sentences and the fact that Lazarus doesn't seem to have any responsibility wherever we see him he could have been much younger 
A simple message is carried to Jesus, to where he is. And these sisters refer only to their brother as he whom you love. That again speaks to the closeness of the relationship. No formal request is made in this message. It seems a very short message. And I think it's safe to assume that it's doubtless uh, that this family did not know of the danger that would be taken on if Jesus were to leave and come back to Judea. Maybe that's why they didn't make a formal request. You need to come. But it seems clear that they expected him to come in the way that the message was carried. And whether or not Jesus' response that we read was carried back by the same messenger to Mary and Martha, we, we just don't know. They send to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he says, this illness does not lead to death. For the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's the purpose. It wasn't long ago that the disciples are asking about this blind man who was born blind. Who sinned? Is this is him or his parents? Jesus said, no, it's that I may be glorified. There's a purpose behind that suffering. The same is true here. And I thought we'd just title the message, This Illness Does Not Lead to Death. And in a physical sense, that, that was really what he meant. Death will not be the end result of that specific physical sickness. It'll look like it for four days. But that won't be the end. And spiritually speaking, which we won't get into until next week, where he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And this is speaking not just of the period of time after Lazarus walks out of the tomb until he dies again, but that life that's eternal behind our mortal bodies. That's later. We'll look at that in the weeks to come. But what Jesus said simply means the death will not be the ultimate result of this sickness. Verse 5. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's all three of them. Jesus loves them. John is telling us this again. And then he uses the word so. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And verse 5 seems to serve as a, I don't know, a prelude to the contents of verse 6. As if it's necessary to have an extra sentence aimed at saying again that Jesus loves this family. Because in verse 6, his actions seem to deny that fact. Wouldn't you say? Look at it again. It's very interesting the way the words themselves are used now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so when he heard that Lazarus was ill he went as fast as he could to see them or you could just change the so Jesus loved Mary her sister and Lazarus but when he heard he stayed two more days there's something going on we don't know about that would explain it if we did. This is what you call dramatic tension, where two things don't seem to match, 
There's all sorts of dramatic uh, tension in this book that we're reading. But this is probably about as dramatic as the tension has been thus far. Now, by the words that we've got from God's inspired word, we really have no other option in interpreting what verse 5 and 6 means. We'll just take care of this right here where we are. Jesus' two-day delay was motivated by his love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. How does Jesus love Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? By intentionally staying two days before he goes to see them. So, how do we make sense of that? Because that doesn't seem to make sense. Well, we'll give a few minutes over to that before we get to the end and then try to apply this to ourselves. The so there between the two verses, and this is just doing some background study, cannot mean that Jesus deliberately waited for Lazarus to die because Lazarus was likely dead already. We'd have to do some math to figure all this out. The timeline itself tells us that Lazarus was likely dead about the time the messenger was sent to tell Jesus that he was ill. By the time Jesus arrives at Bethany, and that's about a day's journey, they would walk. So that's day one. Lazarus has been dead four days by the time Jesus arrives and speaks to Mary and Martha. So one day for the message to get to Jesus... Two days for Jesus to wait and one more day for Jesus to make his way to Mary and Martha. That's four days together. He'd been dead four days. So in all likelihood, when Jesus gets the message, Lazarus is dead. So it doesn't make sense that Jesus was deliberately waiting for him to die. It would take, he would be a day late if he left right when he got the message. Now, another thing we can consider is that it would be a greater miracle to raise someone from the dead than just to heal them from their sickness, right? He'd healed people from their sicknesses already. And from other gospel uh, miracles, we learned that this was not the only man that was raised from the dead. Um, and in those cases the person who had died had, was not dead very long. In this case, a four-day dead man would be quite the mirac miraculous event, wouldn't you say? Because the closer to death, the closer you could say, well, maybe it wasn't a resurrection, maybe it was a resuscitation. That's happened. In that case, to be technical, uh, my brother Jacob has been dead before. The little monitor went flat and it beeped real loud in an ambulance from Paris Island to Beaufort Hospital. He had uh, spinal meningitis. It almost killed him, but it didn't. He was in a coma for a while, and then he revived. But technically speaking, we don't even think that's medically that big of a deal, right? Now, you heard me talk about a pastor that I heard over at Colonial during uh, their conference that they have each year who was talking about this miracle and how he said that there's such a thing as being dead 
And there's such a thing as being show enough dead. <laughs> I said, Lazarus was show enough dead. There's no... Martha, being Martha, actually feels compelled to break the silence in the middle of mourning to say, he's decomposed by now. The, the smell will be unbearable. So that's what's taking place in the interim here between receiving word and arriving with the family. There's four days. So is Jesus waiting that he dies? No. Is he waiting long enough that this is a substantial miracle? Well, that again has to do with God's plan for his life. But Lazarus being already dead, I'm not sure if these are things that we could use to call a motivation. All of Christ's decisions are made based on his father's timing. That's so abundantly clear. John makes that point at every turn, it seems. So the urgency of the family, though certainly real to them, isn't the driving force of Christ's actions. I'm careful to use the word manipulated here, but there's no place in this gospel where we see Jesus reacting to something urgent, only to things that are important to his Father's plan, if to no one else's. This isn't the first time that someone close to Jesus came to him with an urgent request. We could go back and look at chapter 2. Do you remember there was a wedding feast? They ran out of wine. This is a big deal. Socially speaking, you couldn't conceive of a worse problem to have than a house full of people who'd be there for days and nothing to drink. So Mary, Christ's mother, comes as if he can do something about it. And we studied about how the way he addressed her was with respect, even though it sounded short. But what he says to her is very specific. What does this have to do with me? As if to remind her, this is not why I left heaven. This is not the reason why I'm here. She came to him in urgency. It was important to Jesus because he performed the miracle, right? But not without letting her know what he was doing and why. And for the purpose of stretching her faith and deepening her love with him. He did this in, on numerous occasions with people that weren't close to him. Disciples that would say, we want to follow you. And he would say, you need to know what you're getting into before you commit to such a thing. Some that he worked miracles on. It seemed very painfully straight with them. Then there was his brothers in chapter 7. That was after chapter 6 where the feeding of the 5,000 seemed to be the high water mark of his popularity. And then he begins to teach to them that he is the bread of life and that they must eat his flesh and his blood and by the end of it they're all saying who can hear this stuff they're leaving he asks the disciples are you going to leave too and it seems to be a, a, a disaster publicly and his disciples say you need to go to the feast stop hanging around here go do those miracles in Jerusalem where everybody can see you we can fix this he says you go on I'm not going that was an urgency from his brothers. And he did actually go, but after he waited several days. What he did, we have no idea what he was doing, but he was alone. Like he's basically alone here. When people say, we need your help, we're finding oftentimes he's saying, no you don't. 
Not like you think you do. And then this mysterious silence where things are learned that couldn't be learned any other way. And a lot of that we don't know as we're reading until the story unfolds. In each of these cases, the need was urgent, but not anywhere near on the same level of importance as the business for which Christ came into the world. And the delay was loving and resulted in greater belief on their part. So with that in mind, let's take another stab at the tension between verses 5 and 6. The family's hurting. Jesus learns of this. So, he waits two days. I think the problem between verse 5 and 6 and the reason why the tension is there, I don't think the, the verse is, is, is anywhere near as much attention for those who are on one side of it as opposed to the other and certainly our Lord and what I mean by that is I think the big difference is a problem in separate definitions of the concept of love that he mentions he loves them in verse 5 but he doesn't go to see them in verse 6 now wouldn't you agree this is inspired scripture that There's no tension between verse 5 and 6 as far as Jesus and his behavior if we're talking about his perfect love that knows all things, right? The problem is our definition of love because it doesn't support such action, right? Here's the way we think of love. Even though we know better than to think of love than this, we think of love as someone else maximizing our happiness. Right? I know they love me because they did this, that, or the other. Most of the time, when a relationship begins to disintegrate and you analyze the contents of a counseling session, it's, it's usually a maximizing of one's offenses against themselves and a minimizing of the offenses against the other and accusations of not having been fulfilled or made happy. And that usually is the terms we, we frame our love relationships in, right? And one of the best ways to look at this, and this, this, this type of insight is, is always free and it's easily accessible and it works so brilliantly so many times we use it but just think of a parent and a child it's time for bed I don't want to go to bed well go to bed I told you it's bedtime well you just don't want us to have any fun go to bed or I'm going to now if this has gone out of hand well you don't love me I haven't heard that yet. <laughs> I do remember a, a conversation between two of my boys at one point where a, a disagreement happened in a flash and the response was, you're the worst brother ever. But then what I witnessed after that, it got real quiet in the room, was the most vivid, I can't believe I said that and I wish I could take it back that I've, I've ever seen. 
But what was that that triggered it? The explosive, you're the worst brother ever. Our definition of love, which is first, self-serving. Me first. That's what love is all about. Where with Jesus, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's you first. But in certain times where that you first is being worked out, it looks as if you're not first at all. Maybe it's him first. It can get very confusing. And we have to have clear eyes, wide open to be able to see these types of things. There's a huge difference between the love an adult understands and the love a child understands. You can take it even further. Can a child, do they have the capacity to understand at bedtime that it's loving for the parent to send them to bed on time? No. At what point does a man realize that the things that his mother and father did for him actually do make sense? I don't know. It depends on the maturity of the person. But I think it's in layers. I'm still learning that what my mother and father did for me was the right thing when at periods in my my life I might have looked at it as the wrong thing. It's a depth of love that, that comes from experience. Now, if you want to try just for a moment to understand the difference between your maturity level and understanding of the complexities of love over against the author of love who created you, be my guest. But you're going to lose that. It's infinite. Though it's on display in this passage. Let's move on a little further. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? So the disciples think this is a horrible idea. And on paper, it it looks to be correct. To go up to Judea clearly meant to run considerable risk to Jesus and anyone that went with him. So Jesus answers that. He's going. He says they should go. They say it's dumb. So here's how he responds. Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now it seems as, as, as usual, uh, there seems to be a deeper meaning behind the face value of what Jesus is saying here with his actual words. Uh, there's little hints here because it is obvious and they didn't wear watches but their days were divided basically 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness and that would move as the seasons would change but I think he's saying more than hey we'll go during the daytime and none of us will trip and fall we won't make the trip at night there's more to it than that Notice in verse 10, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Or the light of this world. He'd already said, I am the light of the world. So although the daylight period of Jesus' ministry was almost gone, he's down to the last week, give or take a few days. He will work until the night comes. To when his hour has come, as John keeps referring to it. There won't be any stumbling until that hour comes. His disciples will stumble. And the time to have worked will be over. 
The passion is in process. The sacrifice will be made. Those sins will be forgiven. But for now, Jesus is saying, no stumbling now, but we got to get a move on. And the time would come where time was up. Do you find that interesting that the, the, the God of timelessness chose, he didn't have these, but submit himself to time? That, that there, were, there were minutes and seconds that Jesus is here on this earth. And he's speaking as if it's coming. You know, we wait on appointments. Or uh, when, we're, when we're kids, we wait on birthdays and graduations. We also wait on surgery dates. Uh, we plan for, we wait on, and then we sit through funeral services, though we don't, some of us know exactly when those land. But Jesus is human. He knows this is coming. There's a, a prayer in a garden where he's going to sweat great drops of blood. This is, this is no small thing. All of this is going on and he's days left. So notice by 11, Jesus hasn't said anything to his men about Lazarus yet. So I can understand why in verse 7 through 10, they think it's a dumb idea. But after saying these things, he says to them, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And it sounds like he's going to go alone I don't know that that singular there means alone, but the work of awakening will be his and his alone. The disciples aren't going to help wake Lazarus up. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. This is good news to them. And they're probably just being brought in on it, and they're thinking quickly, okay, uh, fever breaks, then you sleep. This is good. He's going to recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So they're not tracking with him as usual, which is interesting because in the New Testament from here on out, every time we hear of death, it's always talked about in the term of, of sleep, right? It's temporary, not permanent, to be continued. Or in the Old Testament, sleep was described as sleeping with one's fathers, right? Which didn't seem to... Be, have any uh, undo button with it. But, but this does. All of this is future, and they don't know about this. But from here on, you'll see that word sleep referred to death a lot, where until now you haven't seen it referred that way at all. Then verse 14, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Now, you can take verse 14 and 15 and uh, put them in the same category as two verses with much tension. Because how can you say in the same breath, Lazarus has died, I am glad. But he's specific here. I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. So Lazarus' death is for the purpose of the Father and the Son receiving glory. But it seems like the delay might have more to do with the disciples than it does with Mary and Martha. You say, well, that's not fair. They need Jesus. So does the disciples. It's God's almighty plan. So we watch as guests in awe. Let us go to him. So Psalmist called the twins said, 
to his fellow disciples, let's also go that we may die with him. We'll hang on to that for just a second. These men were already believers. Because they wouldn't follow this man to death if they weren't, right? But belief has its progressive component, wouldn't you say? Before these men would turn the world upside down in the book of Acts, they're going to deny that they even knew Jesus when they run from the Garden of Gethsemane. So there's a little room for improvement between here and Acts, right? There's some building up of their faith, some deepening of their love, some stretching of of the capacity of their emotions, their patience, all these things. Even though it sounds crude to say it, this is a class in the school of preparation for what these men will need to carry this gospel to the ends of the world. They would not enroll in this class. They've been enrolled in it, drafted for it. And all of this under God's plans for their lives and for ours as well. God will use them in a mighty way after he's gone and they'll need to see what he's going to do to a man that's been dead for four days. That fits into the whole equation. And then we got Thomas here. Because of what happened in chapter 20, if we were to fast forward, you you probably know this. When we hear the word Thomas, what do you usually think of? The word before it. Doubting Thomas, right? Because in chapter 20, when the disciples are telling Thomas, who wasn't there in the upper room, he's alive. And he says, unless I put my finger in the print of his hands and in his side, I'm not going to believe. I want want to see this. Uh, We also see in chapter 14, after Jesus says, I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away, I will come again receive you to myself, we'll be there forever. It's Thomas who says, we don't know where you're going or how to get there. Now, I think there's enough here, because if you look through Matthew and Mark and Luke, you wouldn't find anything but Thomas's name. John is the only one who fleshes this man out. And it's Luke who's always uh, has his focus on medical things, one's body. Being great with child. He looks at life that way. And Matthew looks at things rather uh, prophetically. Fulfilling all the little uh, loose details with the the Old Testament. The prophecies. John, the one whom Jesus loved, is is way more sensitive. His gospel doesn't even seem at all like the other three. He's telling us things about people's personalities. And I think there's enough here that it might be in our best interest to give Thomas the doubter the benefit of the doubt. Because what he said here at the end is about as courageous as anyone else had said. Because when you hear Peter say, I'll never deny you, I'll die with you. Peter has been saying dumb stuff like that for a long time. But the guy who says, I'm not going to believe until I can put my finger in the prince. Lord, you say that, but we don't know where you're going. So, so how do we know the way? This is Thomas's process. He's thinking through all this stuff like some people you know have to do. Maybe that's the way you have to do things. But he's precise in, in, in his mechanical, specific way of laying it all out and weighing it and sifting it. 
So when Thomas says, well, let's go with him. I think it's his way of saying, let's roll. Because it almost seems as if one option that just never even dawned on him was letting him go by self. We're going to go too. This is the end. This is, this is how this ends. Now he knows nothing about what is going to happen or the cross or what the cross means until later. But his belief is sure, even though he's still checking things out. I think it's a great line. Let us go also that we may die with him. All right. What does this mean to us? I think we've made a case. And it's at least coming into focus what we're supposed to believe this passage means. Um, But what can we do with it? And this isn't one of those places where you say, all right, we know what it meant to them. What does it mean to us? Well, it means to us what it meant to them. It only means one thing. But what are the implications of it? How do we apply this? What, what, what is true for them that's true for us? And how can we be encouraged by it? David put the music together today perfectly to, I think, bring themes out of this passage that there comes a time where our understanding of Christ's love for us and His grace and its cost makes most sense and it's usually not on the brightest day may even be the darkest one so here's two things that I think can help us two concepts two thoughts and I preface them with this question what difference would it make to you if you knew these two things down to the last fiber of your being not that you just knew them in your head but that you knew them in your bones. And both of them are wondrously bright in this passage. Number one is that Jesus loves you. John said it more than once. Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, Martha. And then it gets confusing when we learn of what he did. But the fact that he loved them is clear. You say, well, that was three people that lived in Bethany in a place that he felt at home. Well, then just go backward to chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved a world that he gave his only son. They are among the same group that he's headed for a cross. You think it's rough on watching a brother die of a fever. They're all going to watch him die on a cross in short order. Is it not clear that Jesus loved both this family in Bethany and his disciples? Is it not clear that Jesus loves us? We know this in our head. You're sitting in a pew on Sunday dressed up for crying out loud. I think you believe that. But does it make a difference? Do you believe it on a bad day? The worst day? Is it your life preserver? Is there room for that faith to grow? I know it's a blank check if you haven't had your walk through the valley of the shadow of death just yet. But do hard times serve to strengthen the confidence that we have in our Lord? I can tell you that the vows that I read over in a hallway and then walked out into a room full of people that would known me for a very long time 
and Virginia stood right across from that young lady there. Those vows that I made, if, if you knew what they were compared to what I know now, we'd all have a real good laugh. I didn't know anything. But I meant them. But what they mean now is a lot more than what they meant then. We're not calling into question the sincerity of these human beings, but we're all human beings. So the time that I have had together with my wife has deepened those things. My promise, my commitment. We've been through some stuff. You've been through some things with the people that are important to you. Does that not stretch it, deepen it? Make it more real? Would you change those things? Would you give them back? I bet they hurt. I bet they hurt you real bad. Maybe them themselves, not just the things you went through. But on the other side of it, what difference did it make? A good difference? And we're not talking about two humans who wrong each other. We're talking about the one who sent his son to die for us. It's, it's a perfect love. And second... Not only that Jesus loves us, but would it make a difference down to our bones if we know that what he's doing is what's best? The general principle here is this. Christ delayed coming to his faithful, loving followers in Bethany in order to strengthen their love and their faith. This is about as an adult conversation as Christians can have, right? That your Father in Heaven is prepared to allow pain to be your teacher. Say, that's cruel. Well, do you love your kids enough not to let them eat dessert all day? I say, that's a stupid illustration. It is. But there is such a thing on this planet with people who love one another to allow what could be presumed as pain for our good, our, our, our strengthening, we call it discipline. We call that love. What is love if it doesn't have the ability to save one from something that would cause them harm? Even if at that moment that is what they want, even precisely so. Our purpose in life is to glorify God. That's why we're here. That's why God made Adam and Eve in a garden. He gave them His image to display His characteristics. And then when sin entered the picture, He had to distance Himself from them and curse them with, with death because they no longer were able to bear and reflect His glory and His image. But through salvation, that's been reversed. We've been given God's image back and we can display God's characteristics and glorify Him. That's what we're here to do. It's not easy, but that's it. But I'm afraid that until we see Jesus face to face, all the lessons we must learn to glorify Him better are lessons learned the hard way. We glorify our Lord better through hard lessons than easy lessons. That all goes back to the garden. That will one day fall off. But not yet. It's been paid for been conquered but between now and then it's required that we trust our Lord he's the one who's determined not to let us fail and in Jude now unto him who's able to keep you 
from stumbling to present you faultless before his presence with great joy it's going to require some doing and the shape we're in now there's a lot of work to be done to get us in that shape later so the inexplicable delays of Jesus are delays of love the one who has your best interests in heart I'd like to be able to say that if you had those two things in your pocket Jesus loves me and he's doing what's in my best interest you can get through anything anything but then there's that situation with a man being handcuffed and taken away from a garden and men around a fire don't lose heart some of the things that come out of your mouth are just a glimpse to what goes on in your head but don't forget he loves you and he knows what's best for you Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your truth. I thank you for learning a lesson like this in community. It'd be one thing to learn it by ourselves. Because some of us in this room are in a good spot. We've had a good week, maybe a good year. This year looks good. But when we pile up in a church like this together, we know of people who had a bad year we know people have a procedure this week we know people had one last week we know of people who are going on when things at home are rough we know of people have said goodbye here recently and have to wait even though a thousand years is just one day with you it's lonely. Lord, what we sang in these songs, we need your grace. We need your love. We need your assurance. We need your comfort. We need a lot of things. We're needy people. Lord, I thank you for a passage like this. One that even looks like you did the wrong thing, but if we look at it correctly, you're doing the right thing because you love us. So, Lord, take what we need from this and apply it to where it's used best. Lord, help us to think through a hymn we're going to sing. And then, Lord, send us out of here with one last benediction in Scripture. We ask all this in your name. Amen.